You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, my son Owen had a birthday party this weekend and uh, it rained, but my wife did something amazing. She set up this incredible ninja warrior, floor is lava, obstacle course in the garage for these dozen or so third graders. It was freaking epic. Uh, I mean, it started in this inflatable UFO. There were all these balloons and the kids had to find the balloon with the right name on it and emerge from there and jump through a series of hula hoops and then walk across a balance beam and crawl through a tunnel made out of cardboard and then jump onto a trampoline while they were throwing balls at a lava monster, negotiate these different balls over this area and on and on they would go and it was crazy. But what was interesting is I remember as we were trying to explain to them this game, we knew like these kids are going to love this. But first we got to explain to them the rules. And that moment was almost impossible. I mean, I remember as I started just like telling the dozen of them, everybody has a seat. Let me tell you how this game goes. And as soon as I said that, half of them got up and I was like, there's only been one rule so far. Just one, just sit, sit. What did I just say? What did I say? What are you doing? What are you doing? You're not sitting, sit, please. Everyone sit. Let me explain the game, then we can do it. I can't do it unless we, we're taking longer to explain it than we're going to do to run. And on and on we had to go to get him to sit, be still. Let me explain. You got different teams. How's it going to go? And on and on. And they were just so resistant to being shackled by these rules, right? And yet finally the time came for them to run the obstacle course and they loved it. They were freaking out. I remember at the end of it, all the kids who were uncertain, weren't sure, were kind of bored by the rules. By the end, they're like, can we run it again? That was awesome. That was epic. And I was like, man, I'm not sure about the timing. I don't know. And as I told them I wasn't sure, I gave them about five minutes to just do whatever you want. No rules. And for about five minutes, they had a lot of fun. Lawlessness can be exciting. (laughs) But by the end of that five minutes, they had destroyed the entire obstacle course. And so when they wanted to run it again, it's like, it's too late. Uh, You have wrecked it. And it was fascinating to watch something happen. They hadn't even uh, expected that all these guidelines that had felt so oppressive early on, they realized those had actually been for our good. That these laws we so despised actually gave us the liberty to enjoy the game set before us. Now, why do I say that to you? Because... Uh, We say it all the time here that Jesus is our lead story, that what spirituality is about is not a list of rules. It's about a relationship. You don't work your way to heaven. It's a free gift. We don't earn God's approval. It's his grace that makes us who we are. You can't earn the smile of God. You don't deserve it, but he freely loves you. That's what we talk about, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law, right? And so we say that, and you hear that, and you go, wow, Ben, that's amazing. You said that in just a few sentences. You could write that in a pamphlet. So why do we have all this? And if it really is all by grace and you can't earn it, then why is there this huge section with all these rules? If it's not about law, there seems to be a lot of laws in here. And what do we do with the Old Testament And more specifically, what do we do with what's called the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? How do we make sense of these? For many of us, they're confusing. For some of us, they're even embarrassing uh, that it's become popular in in modern day to, to sort of mock your allegiance to spirituality by pointing out sections from this early part of your Bible. People will say like, oh, so you're supposed to obey the Bible? Well, do you like shrimp cocktail? 
Do you eat shellfish? Are your clothes woven of two different types of cloth? Okay, so you want me to follow the sexual ethic, but then you ignore these rules? So why should I fit my life to the rules you keep and not the ones you disobey? You're a hypocrite, your book's irrelevant, the end. And we go, no, that's not right. I mean, <laughs> the, good, the back has the good stuff. We're like, um, can someone give me a ruling on why we don't do some of them and do other ones? And we walk away a little confused and a little distressed. If we are saved by grace, why do we have the law? What does it mean? And there've been times in church history where some people said, you know why it's called the Old Testament? Because it's old, let's ditch it. And yet throughout history, the people of Jesus said, no, the roots of our family tree are back here. But we need to understand why did God give us this law, right? And so what I wanna do is we, we've talked about Leviticus and, and we talked last week about how the symbolic elements of the sacrifices pointed to the larger reality that Jesus fulfilled. And now next week, we're gonna talk about not just the vertical reconciling with God, but the implications for how we treat each other. But I wanted to give us some framing here of Leviticus within the law to help us understand why this law. If we are saved by grace, what was the point of God drawing these people to the mountain and giving them this covenant. How do we make sense of the Old Testament? And I wanna give you five reasons, five reasons God gave us the law. And these five reasons break into two categories, really categories of emphasis. That the first category is we gotta understand the original audience the law was given to. That the law in the Old Testament was given to a particular people at a particular time for a particular purpose. And two reasons for the law will have more emphasis that direction. But then three reasons will really help apply to what does it mean for us today? How do we interact with the law of God given to us in the Old Testament? So to get a running start, the law begins in in Genesis. In Genesis, if you remember, in Genesis 1, you get the first 12 chapters, you get really the, uh, the foundations of reality, that there is a God who makes all things and makes the earth and makes us in his image so that we might know him and walk with him. And early in the book, we break faith with God. I'll go my own way. I don't want to listen to you. And when humanity breaks faith with God, everything breaks. Our dynamics with each other break, our relationship with God breaks, the world breaks, everything breaks. And we see, hey, not only that humanity has dignity, but it has depravity. We see what's wrong with us and how is it going to get dealt with? And as society proliferates, you see humanity is capable of some marvelous things, technologically, different advances, and yet there's something wrong in our hearts. A disease started in the garden that's infecting us to this day. And yet God in his mercy by Genesis 12 shrinks the whole focus down to one man and tells Abram, I want you to go to the strategic piece of real estate I'm gonna put you in and I'm gonna bless you. And then through your seed, your offspring, I'm gonna bless every family on the earth. Abraham obeys God by faith, moves to that little piece of land. Abraham has a son. That son has a son. That son has 12 sons. Israel has 12 boys. And Genesis, the first book of the law, ends with the the 12 sons of Israel moving down to Egypt to survive in a day of famine. And when the book of Exodus, the second book in the law, opens up, the 12 sons of Israel have now grown to the 12 tribes of Israel. This whole people group now existing in Egypt that makes Egypt nervous, so they enslave them. And they enslave them for longer than there's been in America. And so for hundreds of years, these people are enslaved as they grow, and then God sends Moses. Many of us are familiar with this part of the story. Let my people go. And God uh, does all these miracles to get his people out. And so they leave uh, Egypt and are heading back to this land that God promised Abraham, from which they will be a blessing to all the families in the world. But as they do it, they make this journey through the desert. And as they journey through the desert, God stops. And he stops them at the mountain in the passage we just read. 
And he stops him at Mount Sinai and says, hey, here's the deal. I wanna make a covenant with you. That the God who rescued you, I want you to know me. And not just know me, I want you to be with me. And he begins to speak to them and we get this big ceremony where God establishes his covenant. And as we read this passage, a covenant is, it's a binding agreement between two parties. I want to bind myself together with you. And so there's aspects of it that are kind of like a wedding ceremony. Wedding ceremony, two people get up front and say, hey, we are binding our lives together in a covenant until death do us part, right? But in some other ways, what's happening here is is less like a wedding ceremony and more like the giving of a constitution. You'll see in the law, there's, there's rules for the governing of society, that when they stumbled out of Egypt, it was just a massive, fumbling, former slave group. And they had no sense of identity or culture. And so God gives them some structure and he begins to give them some symbols and he begins to tell them their story of who they are. Every culture has symbols and story to let you know who you are. And God gives it to his people in that space. And what he does at that mountain is he says, I'm gonna forge you into a family that accomplish my purposes for the sake of the world. And as he does it there, all this formality, the ceremony, the the smoke and the lightning and the thick darkness and the trumpets, we put ceremony around sacred moments. We do and God does here. Um, When there's a transition of power from president to president, we surround a moment like that with ceremony, right? To let us know this is an important thing that's taking place. I went to a funeral at Arlington National Cemetery recently and great ceremony abounded around the burying of this friend because we said, hey, we're gonna dress different and talk different and stand different. Why? Because all these symbols communicate something about how we honor the life of our friend. And we put ceremony around marriages. We, we say different things, dress different ways to communicate this binding together of the family is something sacred. And so here in this moment, there's this dramatic moment at the mountain where God says, I got a covenant. We're starting a constitution. I'm forging a family. And so we're gonna surround this with great ceremony. And in the midst of that, we get these five reasons. And the first one uh, starts in Exodus 19.4. God says to this group of people in that moment, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. He said, the whole world's mine. I made everybody. But I want to make you my treasured possession. He'll say later, I want you to be holy. That word holy means set apart. That God is called holy, holy, holy. He's in a category all his own as the maker of everything. And yet he says, but I want you to be with me. I want you to be set apart with me like a husband and wife, right? And as you do that, uh, it's interesting. Paul is talking to the Romans in Romans 3, and he's talking about how Jew and Gentile, the ethnos, non-Gentiles, he said, all of us are like under sin. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So he's saying, Jew, Gentile, all of us are a mess. But then Paul asked the question in Romans 3, so if Jew and Gentile are all a mess, what was the benefit of being Jewish? And he says in Romans 3, what was the advantage for the Jew? He says, much in every way. They were entrusted with the very oracles of God. So what's the first reason God gave us the law? It was for their good. He said, I'm creating a people for me and I'm gonna speak to you my words. I'm gonna give you this for your good. Why was it for their good? Number one, it was for their good so it could sync them up to reality. These are sub points, number one, by the way. Sync them up with reality. Then he tells them in Exodus 20, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image of a likeness. He says, hey, I'm the God who is. That's why I did all those miracles. I didn't need him to set you free. I could have just miracled you out of there. I did all these to show you all these gods Egypt are working. They're not real. 
They won't solve your problems. These things you're looking to for answers don't have them. I'm gonna introduce you to the real God so you don't have to go look into these other places for significance or value. It's right here. Let me sink you up to the reality of who I am. It's interesting, John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides and also went to Australia, but he was also an anthropologist as well as a missionary. And it was fascinating for him as he was studying the the people on the island of Tana, this tribe of uh, people that practiced cannibalism. He said he noted that they had stone idols, charms, sacred objects, which they abjectly feared. And as he studied them, he says their worship was entirely a service of fear. He said their aim was to propitiate an evil spirit to prevent calamity or secure revenge. He said they had no idea of a God of mercy. And then he does something interesting. If you read his autobiography, he said at that time in the late 1800s, many people, they saw different tribal groups and they would say, hey, maybe they're like a less evolved part of humanity, right? Not fully human. And he argues, no. Aborigines in Australia, the tribes in Uh, Tana, these are human beings. And one of his evidences is the human soul longs for God. And he says, where it doesn't know God, it will worship all kinds of things to grope for him. Stone idols, grass, trees, volcanoes, hair and fingernails. He said, where they can't meet the one true God, the human soul is so desperate to connect to the eternal. If it doesn't know God, it will create one in its image. And so it was a gift from God to the Jewish people to say, hey, I'm gonna keep you from the groping that if you look throughout centuries, humanity has done. He said, it's interesting. You think you would find an atheist culture somewhere out there. We've never discovered one. Every culture is groping around to know the God who made them. The Jew did not have to grope in the dark. God said, I'm revealing to you who I am, right? It was to sync them up with reality. But not just to sync them up to reality, it was to offer fidelity to this God. Not just an awareness that a deity exists, that you can actually know me. That's where he says, I wanna have a covenant with you. And he says, I'm a jealous God. Now I know some people hear that and they're like, that's so petty. Like God's jealous, really? He needs to grow up. God's like, what are y'all doing over there? Are you worshiping other gods? Who are you talking to? Let me see your cell phone. Let me see your text messages. Like, is that God? He's desperately insecure about who you might be worshiping on the side? No, there is a type of immature jealousy, right? Yet there's an appropriate fidelity in covenantal relationships. Marriages in this covenant with God is like a marriage, right? Uh, Friendships should not be possessive in that way. Friendships are are open, welcomes other friends. But in a marriage, we say it in our wedding ceremonies, right? Forsaking all others, I keep myself only unto you. I mean, you don't hear that in a wedding and go like, I guess if you're so insecure, you have to hear that. You know, that's the nature of a covenant is I'm setting aside everything else and I'm giving all of me to you and all of you is coming to me. That's holy, that's a covenant. We expect this for ourselves, Ocean's 11. Danny Ocean wants to get back with Tess, right? And yet there's a problem. She's with Andy Garcia, right? And so what does he do? He gets together Ocean's 11 and he robs the casino Andy owns, right? And then in the end, the climactic moment, what does he do? Danny Ocean comes to Andy, plays ignorant about robbing his casino and yet says, I found a way to get you all your money back you just have to give up tests, right? And when he offers them that, what do you want? Do you want tests or do you want the money? And he says, I want the money. And what he doesn't know is that Tess, Julia Roberts, is watching this play out through a camera on a screen. And as she sees him choose money over her, you see the look on her face like, oh no. And if you're watching it, everyone in the crowd is like, ooh, 
Don't do it, girl. You deserve better than that. You don't become number two to money, Julia. You get out of there. He's not worthy of you. Right? Why do you say that? Because to say, hey, I'm going to love you second only to my money. No, you keep that love. Right? I want to be holy under you or we're nothing. And she goes with Danny. Right? And it's the same with us. God says, I'm bringing all of me to you. You don't need these fake gods. You can come to me. And I want you to bring all of you to me. Right? And so I'm going to sync you up with reality. I am the God who is. And I'm offering fidelity. And I want you to be knit together with me because I love you. And then also this covenant had a civic quality in the Old Testament because it gave them a structure to their society. It gave them a way to be blessed by God and to restrain evil. That's what a law did. Remember, he was setting them up, not just as a people who know God spiritually, but as a, as a nation that would operate civically, right? Uh, we don't want to live in a lawless land. No one vacations in a place where the rule of law has gone down. We evacuate Americans from those places, right? Uh, every TV show you've ever watched about people being dropped on a desert island ends up with them making laws, right? I don't know if you remember Lost before it got real crazy with the polar bears and whatnot. They realize we're stuck on this beach and it's like, well, everyone basically knows the right thing to do. We'll all be cool with each other. And it doesn't take two episodes before someone starts hoarding insulin and they got to start making rules. All right, let's all get along and share the drugs, right? And they have to work out a series of laws so we can all flourish, that laws can actually bring liberty. No one wants to live in a lawless place. And so God gave them a structure to their society. And if you read through the law, if you can make it through that part of your read through the Bible uh, journey, you start to realize you could do a lot worse than the system God structured for his people to flourish. Do you notice one of the first laws was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What's God's first law to us? Take a day off. God, God is so oppressive in the Old Testament. All these rules. Rule number one is take a break. Relax. Not just you, but everyone who works for you. And give the donkey a day off too, man. Give everybody a day off. And he says, do it because I wove that pattern into creation. God's like, I took a day off and I don't get tired but I just took a day to enjoy all that's been made. So you don't need to work every single day. Rest, that's how I made you. God's giving them law that allows them to flourish as human beings, right? Uh, if you were to open a fast food franchise, the most profitable per store is Chick-fil-A. And they take one day off a week, right? And so is that because of the day off or because of the chicken? I'll let you debate that, you decide. <laughs> but is it possible to be profitable and still rest? Yeah. God wove that into the pattern of creation. He says, honor your father and mother, right? He says, we need a structure of authority and you need the authority to be the people who care about you. And what's interesting is not only in this section, which is the 10 commandments, so it doesn't say that explicitly in this text, it says it later. And actually the moral law in Leviticus is really just an extrapolation of all this. What you start to realize is, yes, this is talking about the nuclear family of father and mother, but remember, they were all related. It was a confederation of clans coming together. And he says, I want you to see one another in familial terms. And so everyone in leadership, they called father and mother, that, that we're a family committed to each other's flourishing, and yet there needs to be structure that the wise ones can give laws that help all of us flourish together. So let's honor those in authority. That's a good law. I want my children to honor me. Not because I have some weird insecurity I'm looking for a third grader to fill. Because I know it's good for them to honor that someone may have wisdom that I don't have. 
And if I don't teach them to honor authority, I will inflict them on all of you. (laughs) And I don't want to send out into the world ignorant and arrogant children. And so for my love of you, I make them honor me, right? It's good for their souls. It's good for all of us. That's not a bad law. And it says that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. I love that he comes with the promise. Hey, you need to honor your mother and your father if you want to live long in the land. And I remember for me as a kid, I used to always think that was like a threat where God was saying, obey your parents or else, boom, like bolt of lightning comes flying down. You're like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and really, I don't think he's saying that. What he's talking about here is, hey, I'm building this structure of love and authority and you violate it you won't endure long in the land. And I pulled so many stats, I don't have time to read them all now, that, that on basically every measurable, incarceration, early s- sexual debut, success scholastically, on almost every level, children from intact two-parent homes flourish above those who don't have that. That if we don't honor this structure of mother and father, we won't dwell long in the land. It hurts us at every conceivable level that God is wise and caring with these laws. Now, does that mean if you didn't come from an intact two-parent home, you're doomed? No. I came from a divorced home, many of you have, and God's grace is too good to leave us to doom. That's not how that works. And yet it's not wrong to hold up the standard and said it's meant to be this way. You shall not murder. Great idea. (laughs) Where there is no law, life becomes cheap. See the news every single day. You shall not commit adultery. I don't want my people walking around terrified that they might be used and abused sexually. That was the culture they lived in. Women and children were right to be afraid. Even later in society, the Romans would say that. Uh, We keep our concubines for our daily needs and our wives for legitimate children, right? That it was common to use and abuse. Women and children were disposable. The believer in God had a different quality. They said, no, we commit ourselves. God made male and female and put them together in Genesis, right? That we're meant to love all of you and you're meant to love all of me. That I don't want to just use your body. I want to love you, body, heart, mind, soul, and commit myself to you. And in the safety of covenant, sexuality flourishes. That God did this for the protection of his people because he cares, not to restrict you. These are laws that bring liberty, right? You shall not steal. Again, Great idea. And not only not steal, Leviticus will unpack that further and say, you don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. And you read that and you're like, well, who's really gonna do that? Like someone's running around putting chairs in front of blind people. Like, come on, that's obvious. And what he's saying there is it's a principle. You don't exploit someone else's weakness for your financial gain. He says, that's the kind of society I want. I want one where we realize we win when everyone flourishes. I don't want to see your weakness and exploit it so I win. Much of the financial calamity that's happened in America from 2008 to today is because of that. I see your weakness and I exploit it so I can use you to help me. And God says, I don't want us to be that way. And on and on the law goes as a way to not restrain us, but to liberate us, to flourish. That's why he did it, so he could bless his people and restrain their sin. Jesus was asked what what the law was about, and he combined a quote from Deuteronomy and a quote from Leviticus 19. He says, the whole law is summarized in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the people around you, care about them. And because that's not obvious how to do that, the law has to unpack that in a million different ways. It says things like, hey, if you see someone's donkey that gets loose, even if you don't like the guy, help him get his donkey, man, okay? Because you'd want to help him, you'd want him to help you, right? 
Uh, if you had a great wheat harvest and your neighbor had some calamity, loss of a kid, loss of parents, loss of, hey, if they suddenly become destitute and disadvantaged, don't glean all your harvest and keep it for you. Leave some wide open on the edges of your field and all through it for them to eat so they can thrive. Basically, the whole law can be su- summarized in just be cool, man. Just be cool to each other. Don't be jerks. But because that's vague to many of us, he's got to spell it out, right? But you see all through the law, it's to sync you up with reality, to help provide fidelity with God and to give you a structure of society so you can flourish. Do you see that? And so all through it, he gives them these civic governmental laws, these ceremonial laws that they gave them a sense of their story as a culture and then moral structures to help each other flourish, right? All through this, they would look so different from the cultures around them that lived in terror of capricious deities and would sacrifice their children. You see in Leviticus 19 to Molech, trying to appease a deity that could never be satisfied, that would degrade women, the proliferation of sex and violence, he says, you will look very different from the culture. I'm giving you these laws for your good. They're laws that bring liberty. But not just for your good, number two, they're for God's glory. That when the nations see me bless you, they'll want to know me because they'll want to be like you. Exodus 19, he says, all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What I love about that is the job of a priest is to help people connect to God. So he wasn't saying, I'm gonna bless you and then you all run off and take all the blessings and forget the world. He said, I'm making you special, not just from the world, but for the world. I'm gonna bless you and make you special. Why? So you can help the world know me. How are you gonna do it? He tells him in Deuteronomy 4, you see, I taught you these statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded you that you should do this in the land where you're entering to possess it. So keep and do them for this is your wisdom and your understanding and the sight of the people who hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call to him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? He said, hey, I'm going to make you look different. You're going to eat different, wear different clothes, which will make people be like, y'all different. But then when you live morally different, they're going to go, but look at their, their sexual laws look like they're restrictive, but their women are happier, their kids are happier, their men are happier. Hey, the way they have to give to each other, they don't hoard things, they'll have less. No, actually, they all seem to flourish. They're going to see their lives and go, man, this is all wise and understanding. And your God lives in the midst of you. He wants to be near you. What are you like? And as they watch me bless you, they'll want to know me, that they'll know the maker who made them. God said, hey, I am making you my Ryan Reynolds. Don Saladino is a multimillionaire. And maybe you don't know his name, but he is a multimillionaire. How? Because he's a fitness instructor and he trained Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman. And as they starred in their movies, people saw Ryan Reynolds' abs and they saw Hugh Jackman was a jacked man. And they ask the natural question, how do I get to be that? And those guys say, Don Saladino. And Don becomes a millionaire, right? That's how it works. That's what's happening in the law. God says, I'm gonna bless you. And people look at you and go, what are you eating? Do you work out? How often do you work out? Are you getting sleep? How do you do it? How are you such a blessed people? How are you so peaceful in the midst of crisis? How are you loving even to your enemies? How are you kind to even those who are weaker? How are you flourishing as a society? Which incidentally, if no one ever asks you that, you may not be manifesting the principles of God in your own life. But as people look at you and say, how are you like that? You go, let me introduce you to him. Because I have a good God who's with me and blessing me. That really only happened in 1 Kings 10 under the King Solomon 
the queen of Sheba comes and she looks at the land and the text literally says it took her breath away. She said, how blessed are you to have laws this wise and how blessed are you to have a God this close? Why the law? It was for your good and for his glory so that they would know him. And you go, well, Ben, all that sounds great, but what does that have to do with us? So are we supposed to follow it? Why are we eating shellfish? How does this make sense? Let me give you the last three quickly. Number one is it was given to instruct us. It was given to instruct us. Romans 15 says, whatever was written in the earlier times was written for our instruction so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That we don't get rid of this because it encourages us and helps us. And we realize some of the civic laws for the nation of Israel don't apply to the Christian church because we are meant to be made up of people from all nations. That's why when they ask Jesus, are you here to establish a kingdom on earth? He says, my kingdom's not of this earth, but I'm gathering people from all tribes into my kingdom for my glory. We don't follow the same civic laws in the same way. We don't follow the same ceremonial laws that they were images and shadows and pictures, the sacrificial, sacrificial system of what was to come. And yet the moral law has been elevated. That Jesus said, hey, I, I told you not just to, to not murder. I told you to not keep hate in your heart. That these moral laws are meant to instruct us. And yet as you look through all of it and the way God shepherded his people, Romans says it was meant to give us hope. That as we watch how God led his people through their ignorant and difficult, challenging days, we get hope that maybe God will lead us the same way. As God brought them out of slavery and brought them into his promises, maybe he'll bring me out of the things that hold me captive and bring me into a place of hope and flourishing. That we get to see the character of God manifest through his law so we get to know him by seeing the story of how he led other people. So it's meant to instruct us. But also, it's meant to reveal sin. And as you look in the Old Testament, these laws, the moral laws of how we treat each other, uh, the laws of how they're meant to be governed as a society, they were never presented as a means to save yourself. That's not the way it's, it reads. If you look all through it, Romans 3, Paul comments on it. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. He says, no one will be made right by the law. What the law does, though, is it gives you the knowledge of your sin. It's the holy standard. Not that you attain to, to get to God's presence. It shows you how big a derivation you really are. It's interesting. This happens in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Moses is commenting on when he gave the law. And do you remember when he read it? I read it in that Exodus text. After Moses read the law to them, the people said, all that is written, we shall do. And then God responds in Deuteronomy 5 and he says, tell them, oh, that you had such a heart. I mean, they're in that moment when they were like, we're gonna do it all. God's like, probably not. They're like, we were gonna try. Like, Why are you being such a buzzkill? Because he knows you can't do it. You won't do it. The law is not a ladder to lead you to heaven. It is an x-ray to show you you're broken. That's the way the law works. Paul says this law does not justify us. Through it comes the knowledge of sin. We realize how broken we are. Paul says, I didn't know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. And then I saw within my heart every covetous desire. It's interesting, all the external laws, he said I could get. Don't murder people, done. Don't commit adultery, done. Don't covet, that's a heart posture. Don't want your things from you. And Paul said, I realized I can't control the selfishness in my heart. And he realized I'm broken. The law didn't heal him. It showed him how broken he was. And that's what made him cry out for mercy. And this is the same with us. The law is not a ladder to lead you to heaven. It's an x-ray to show you you're broken. Um, 
when I was in high school, I played football. And I remember the second game of my sophomore year, I finally felt like I was making it. I was a starter. I was on the team. I was playing defense. I'd made two tackles. I was living the dream. And then at one moment, I was taking a pursuit angle towards the running back. And suddenly I just saw sky, grass, and was on the ground. And I remember not being sure what happened, but I felt like someone had dead-legged me. I was like, wow, that was the worst dead leg I've ever experienced. And I was about to try to get up and shake it off. But the trainer came running from the sidelines and made me lay back down. And I was like, no, I'm fine. He was like, no, lay there. I was like, no, I'm fine. And then he put his hand on my knee and I let out a stream of profanity. (laughs) Surprised even me. Uh, And realized something's wrong here. And they brought an ambulance on the field and they took me to the hospital. And a few x-rays later, I remember the doctor coming in the office and he turned on that little light board and he stuck the x-ray onto the board. He's like, see that bone right here? And yeah, he goes, that's your femur, biggest bone in your body. See that bone over here? Yeah, he goes, yeah, that's also your femur. Uh, they're, uh, they're supposed to be touching. It's just one, one bone. Yours are here. It's not good, it's supposed to be here. Oh. What's fascinating is what he didn't say was, so let's just get you in the x-ray a few more times and it'll be fixed. Why didn't he say that? Because that's not what x-rays do. X-rays don't heal you. X-rays show you you're broken. And that's what Paul says the, uh, the scriptures were for, that they don't justify us. They don't make us right. They show us we're broken. That's what you see all through the law. And if you make it through your read through the Bible program in a year, you see that. That Moses goes up to the mountain to get the law. And when he comes back, what's happening? They're in a full riot orgy. You're like, what? What are you doing? They automatically violate it. And so what happens after Exodus? Leviticus. What's Leviticus about? The sacrificial system. That some innocent lamb has to shed its blood as a picture of someone innocent has to die to cover your violation of God's holy law. After God gives the law in Exodus, he's got to give a book of Leviticus like, and here's what to do when you break all this. Someone has to cover it by sacrifice. He never expected them to keep it all. He knew they would break it. And even after he gives them Leviticus, this system of sacrifice to show, I come to a God with my sin and acknowledgement of guilt and God forgives me and someone else covers it. Even after that and after they receive his grace and say, yes, I follow you. In the book of Numbers, what happens? He leads them towards the promised land. The God who rescued them is now leading them where he promised them. And as soon as they get to the promised land, what happens? They send in the spies. They see the Canaanites and say, we're all gonna die. They're gonna kill us all. Let's murder Moses and go to Egypt. And God's like, are you serious? You can't be serious. So God goes, okay, you know what? Everyone over 40, you're dead. You're done. Bye. I'm going to start over with a new generation. And so you get Deuteronomy. It means duet nomos, a second law. It's the entire law given again. When you read through your Bible and you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, if you make it that far, you go, finally, I'm done with the law. And Deuteronomy is like, no, let's run it back. And you're like, are you kidding me? Like, no, he's not kidding you because we can't keep it. And then when they finally get into the promised land through Joshua. Then you get the book of Judges. And what happens in Judges? By the end of the book, they are carving up women and sending their body parts to each other. Try doing a quiet time in Judges. And you're like, what? (laughs) And if you make it that far and you read through the Bible, what you start to realize is, you know what? God is true and every man is a liar. God is faithful and we are broken. You don't look at this and go, well, if we just try a little harder, we can get there. You go, no, something's wrong with us. And the law is not a ladder to make me right with God. A law is an x-ray to show us how desperately broken we are. It reveals to sin, right? And the hope of it is, it doesn't just reveal to us sin, 
Romans 3 says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather than the law, we become conscious of sin. But then finally in Galatians 3, Paul says, then is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would indeed be by the law. But scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I love that. In Galatians 3.24, Paul says, the law became a tutor to lead us to Christ. So how do we use the law? Jesus said, Hey, these ceremonial laws of clean foods and unclean, they were just images. They've gone away. The civic law for the nation doesn't apply to my kingdom. And yet the moral law, he elevates. He doesn't get rid of it. He says it's higher. We have an even higher ethic. We don't just not murder. We don't hold hate in our heart. We don't just not curse. We bless our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He elevates the moral law. And you look at it and you go, no one can keep it. Exactly. It reveals to us our sin And then Galatians says it becomes a tutor or pedagogue that leads us to Christ. We talked about this last week, that a pedagogue back in that day was an old man that would take children by the hand and lead them to their school. And I love it that he says, you know what the law does? It grabs you by the hand and it leads you to Christ. It says, do you see the perfect law of God? How that society could flourish? Could they keep it? No. Did they ever keep it? No. Can you keep it? No. Can you fix you? No. Can we fix us? No. And yet in the midst of all this moral law, we violate over and over again. We do these sacrifices. A Passover lamb is slain so that death passes by. We give a lamb that its shed blood covers and atones for my violation of God's law over and over. And the ceremonies participated in, but these blood of bulls and goats can't ever take away sin. And yet Jesus Christ shows up and John the Baptist says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus steps up before group of people and says, you search the scriptures thinking in them you'll find salvation. They testify about me. He says, I haven't come to get rid of the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And he lived the perfect life we could not. He he held perfectly to the law of God. And then he stepped forward as a sacrifice. The wages of sin is death. He never sinned. He need not die, but he did it for you and for me. The perfect lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. How do we know that sacrifice was sufficient? because he rose from the grave. He beat death. It could not hold him. And now as he walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says, beginning with that scripture, what did he do? He walked through it all and said, this was all testifying about me. I was the Passover lamb whose blood was shed so that you could come out of Egypt, set free and be walked into the desert with God. I was the manna that fell from heaven, the grace that daily sustains you. I was the water from the rock. When Moses hit it and water came out, Paul says, that was Jesus. And I was that sacrificial lamb. You were sacrificing over and over again, saying, God, I'm guilty. Will you make me clean? And he says, yeah, rescue is coming. I'm the son of Abraham. I'm the son of David. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who can take out, as the prophet said, your heart of stone and put into it a heart of flesh. The prophets see it. God gave us the covenant and we cannot keep it. The change isn't just in an external law. Something has to change in us. And the new covenant was God saying what? I will remove your heart of stone and put within you a heart of flesh and move you to obey my decrees. He said, I'm gonna change you from the inside out. I'm gonna put my very spirit in you to move you to obey my laws. I had a friend ask me this week. He said, hey, why when Jesus rose from the grave did he breathe on his disciples? I said, because the spirit of God is called the wind of God, the breath of God. 
Sin had separated us from God. Jesus took that separation on the cross. And when he came forward, he said, I'm going to put my very spirit in you who moves you to obey my decrees. That's why when he rose from the grave, he breathed on them and said, receive my Holy Spirit. I came to bring you into a relationship with God with us. I got sin out of the way. He's the high priest. He's the sacrifice. He's the tabernacle. He's our hope. The law reveals sin and then it leads us to Christ. Uh, When I broke my leg and we saw on that x-ray that separated femur, We didn't look to that x-ray to try to heal me. But after he showed me that x-ray of my brokenness, my doctor came in. My doctor was a massive man that loved me, loved my father, loved my family. And he came in and said, you're broken. We got to fix you. And he said, but the doctor's here. He's a good friend of mine. They're not good enough. So I told him he can't touch you. We're probably not friends anymore, but I'm going to make sure you get to the right doctor that can heal you. And he said, but before we do, we're going to transport you, but your leg's too far out of socket. I'm going to partially set it here. And I said, you're going to set it here? He said, yeah. He said, are you going to knock me out? He said, no. I said, is it going to hurt? He said, yes. And then he put my foot under his arm and he put another hand right on my leg and he pulled back and popped my leg into place which was interesting because (laughs) you think you'd scream, but it was so painful, I just went, "Ah," and then started sweating profusely. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't look at him and say, the leg, really? Why'd you have to put your hand there? Why couldn't you touch my elbow? My elbow's good. Why not my shoulder? My shoulder impresses a lot of people. My shoulder's not broken, it's doing great. One on my head, my head feels great. Why did you put your hand on the broken part? Because he's the physician. That's why. And so he comes to touch the brokenness to make it whole again. The law was not a ladder to lead us to heaven. The law was an x-ray to show us we were broken and then to lead us to the great physician. And he puts his hand on the broken places. And you may go, don't touch that. Just let me be a good person. Look at all the good stuff I've done. Look at how many people like me. And he's like, yeah, but there's some brokenness to you. And I'm going to hold up the light of my law into your face. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to admit that. I don't want to confess that. And yet that admission is where the healing begins. That I look into the perfect law of liberty and say, I can't attain it. And he says, no, but I've made a way for you anyway. I am a God of structure for the sake of your flourishing. And I'm a God of grace who will make you what you can't become on your own. It's an x-ray to show you you're broken and to lead you to the great physician who can make you whole, can heal you so you can run in the path of his commands because he sets our hearts free. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, Thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.